It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of January 10th, 2016. On tonight's program, we'll hear Billboard magazine writer Fred Bronson say, And then who knew that that would be the one thing that would be in every Star Trek series after that, even (laughs) Enterprise. This podcast is sponsored by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com slash Marusik for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback, download an ebook, and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. All right, thank you, Craig, and welcome once again to another Get Off My Lawn podcast. This is Kevin, your genial host. How the heck are you? Hope everybody's doing all right. Here at uh, Backpack Studios, we have survived the first onslaught of what everybody keeps calling Godzilla El Nino. Well, if that's all Godzilla has, I think we're going to be okay. A couple of sandbags were required here here at Backpack Studios and a couple of buckets to contain a couple of drips, but otherwise, I think we might, might just brave this storm. For those of you who do not live in Southern California, people here... To say they panic about rain, that's putting it mildly. People panic about war. People panic about pestilence and plague and death. People in Southern California go freaking nuts when it rains. Everybody forgets how to drive. Everybody forgets how to breathe. Everybody forgets everything and just general panic, chaos, looting. It's basically like a riot with water whenever it rains here in Southern California. And since all of the quote unquote, those were air quotes that just happened there, meteorologists (laughs) keep using phrases like Godzilla El Nino, it frightens the general public into a state of already heightened mass hysteria. It becomes, I don't know, quadruply heightened mass hysteria. And well, people get hysterical. But we made it through round one. And we'll see what happens with round two. We'll see. My favorite of the videos, and you can find it online, I think it was in San Diego, one of my friends linked to it, uh, where a couple of, uh, well, it was a neighborhood where people had put out their Christmas trees. It's the first week of January. That's what you do. You take down the tree. And, well, the video showed quite clearly the, the trash man hadn't gotten there in time, and the trees were floating, floating away. It's a fun video to watch. So today's installment of the podcast is another remote. I went to another restaurant. It will be until we go to the next restaurant, the official restaurant of the podcast. It does have some notoriety to it, some infamy, some notorious infamy, if you will, or some infamous notoriety. And I'm going to talk about that with today's guest. So wasting no time, let us head now to Vitello's Italian Restaurant. Take it away, me. All right, we're recording. Okay. Thank you for warning me. I know. This is my first interview from a crime scene. Right. Right. I am here with Fred Bronson. Where are we, Fred? Well, we're in a very infamous restaurant called Vitello's in Studio City. That's right. Famous for... It's where Robert Blake didn't... Didn't kill a woman. Yes. Yes, Yes. uh, 
It, and we've just eaten, so if we sound like we're a little ready for a nap, <laughs> good lasagna. I recommend lasagna. I'll try not to burp. Yes. I, I always joke whenever I interview at a restaurant or whatever, this is now the official restaurant of the podcast until the next restaurant of the podcast. So, right. you know, Vitello's is it. So right. congrats the free sponsor. You know, for them, you know, maybe they'll send me a little, like, a gift certificate or something. The least they could do. <laughs> they probably don't need my business sent their way. They're probably fine. Looks like it anyway. Uh, I bet crowd. they'll appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who do not know Fred Bronson, I have known him. It's been a while since we've reconnected, but I have known him, I want to say, since 1998, 1999. We go back on a few Dick Clark productions. Right. And in addition to writing for various TV shows, award shows, those sorts of things, he is also a writer for, among other things, Billboard magazine. Yes. He has, as he just showed me on his, on his screen, he has even appeared, and we'll talk Trek, he appeared in Star Trek The Motion Picture in a very tiny, tiny little bit. <laughs> you have to know, just for, actually what you need is uh, HD... And freeze frame ability. That's right, and the ability to really zoom in there on that crowd shot. But yeah. yes, that's uh, that was cool to see. <laughs> uh, we will talk Trek definitely because now, again, it, it, I always look at IMDb and things like that ahead of time to sort of get a sense of people, sure. and it's never accurate. So oh, if I say something that isn't, let me know, and we'll, we'll do our best to correct it. But All right, you probably got it right though. One of the one of the things you're accredited for in the world of Star Trek was one of the animated series episodes, which happens to have introduced one of my favorite characters in the novels, that of Captain April. Yes, I created him. I could tell you the story about that, but I did write the final episode of the animated series. Yeah, I had to use another name though. Not yet, did you? Well, I had to, it. Now it's kind of acknowledged. If you go online, you know, it says AKA Fred Bronson. Right. But at the time I was I, that I wrote it. I was the publicist on the series as well. Ah, so they didn't and, want you double-dipping, as it were? Well, NBC considered it a conflict of interest to try to sell a show to a producer who was working for NBC. Oh, I can like see they, that. Okay. They thought if they turn you down, you might not do a very good job for them. <laughs> that wouldn't have been true. But So I had to come up with another name really quickly, and I grew up in Culver City, so I just picked out of the thin air John John Culver John Culver became the name huh and then I found out that John Culver was one of the senators from Iowa at the time <laughs> and the other senator from Iowa at the time was Dick Clark but not not, not Dick that Clark. Dick Clark see it right. all comes back to us yeah but yeah I you know there have been a couple of novels that have featured that character and there was talk of him appearing in the new sets of movies as well and I was wondering do you get residuals well, if they get a character that you really created so here's the story yes but yes and no mostly no no <laughs> with the writers guild if you create a you know when you're in the writers guild and operating under their jurisdiction if you create a character anytime that character is used anywhere else in the future you get a character payment mm. The animated Star Trek did not come under writer's uh -oh. guild jurisdiction. <laughs> I got paid a flat fee, no residuals, nothing from the DVDs. So you get the honor and the credit, but not the... That's all I get. <laughs> but speaking of maybe Robert April being in... And just so, to explain Robert April, uh, I decided that there was a first captain of the Enterprise before Christopher Pike. I went back and watched the Christopher Pike episode to make sure they never called him the first, the first, and they didn't. Right, just Kirk's predecessor. So I decided Pike had a predecessor. In the first book ever written about Star Trek, the making of Star Trek, 
there's a list of names that Gene put together and then chose the captain's name. So Kirk was on there, Pike was on there, and Robert April was on oh. there, along with about six other names. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to go back and pick one of his names for the first captain of the Enterprise? So that's where I got the name, Robert Very April. Nice. Turned out that Robert April was a character in a Have Gun Will Travel episode. <laughs> so that was where he saw the name and liked it? No, Gene or, wrote Oh, that. he wrote that one too. Oh, he wrote and everything. I forgot liked, about that. <laughs> but he liked the name and remembered it and then was almost going to name the captain Robert April. So I named my anyway. What was the captain from his series Andromeda was the same name as the captain, or is the, the, there was another pilot that didn't go. Uh, I can't remember the name of that. Well, there's a bunch. Questor or Spectre or... The one, well, the one about or? the guy that was frozen underground while the Earth moved and then he was thawed out. I can't... It was a beautiful pilot. I really thought that was better yeah. in terms of storyline than Andromeda was. Right, but right. He ended up, I guess, the same thing. He really liked the character name. Right. Wanted to, wanted to borrow it and move it around, so... And the way I found out that Robert April might be in the second Star Trek movie mm. is a reporter on HitFix was invited to J.J.'s office months before the movie came out and wrote a story based on what I heard and saw today at J.J. Abrams' office. I think one of the main characters in the next movie is Robert April from the <laughs> animated. I went, what? Well, it turned out he had seen the storyboard for the comic book. Oh. But didn't realize he thought maybe it was for the movie because Robert April right. was featured in the prequel comic book. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Like it's, I just, it, it's one of those where there have been a couple of books, you know, yeah. that have been penned yeah. about the character later right. on. And, so, and I know that the physical description in the books, anyway, was based on Gene Roddenberry, which I thought was an interesting sort of testimony to right. him in that, too. I don't know if that was your original con conceit or if you it, let it the wasn't. art design go to someone else. But it, it, no, it, it wasn't. Yeah, I just I thought that was interesting that they kind of did it that way in, in the novels. But I, to me, it was an interesting character. It was a very compelling sort of a side thing. And a lot of people joke that, you know, Star Trek, whether it is or isn't referred to as a kid show or where the demographic was, particularly in the animated series, there were some complex storylines for it being an animated series. A absolutely. Well, Dorothy Fontana uh, yeah, produced the first season. Yeah, she used a lot of writers from the original, and there were some episodes of the animated I would put up right against uh, yeah. the original, including the one she wrote yesteryear, where Spock goes back in time. Yeah, and it just, you know, if, if people haven't seen it, not that my recommendation is going to lead to generate, you know, huge DVD sales or whatever, but if they haven't, it's worth checking out, particularly as Star Trek and Star Wars and all these things are sort of resurging in popularity. It's kind of a forgotten yeah. corner of sci-fi them that was worth revisiting but yeah i saw that yes. in your in your credit listing i thought that was cool now you were responsible also it said for a wesley crusher episode of next generation uh well two <laughs> two are you, we're talking about him getting promoted yeah there was one there was the one where he came back and uh, uh yeah. with the glasses yes and the game every, yeah, everybody gets gets hypnotized by weird the thing is it's on today is it really it just it 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 just it was airing at one o'clock Oh, that's funny. BBC America. And it's that's again funny. Tonight. See, there you go. Tune. Well, I won't post this till tomorrow, but tune in previously. But yeah, it'll be on again. <laughs> <laughs> there have been jokes. You know, Will Wheaton himself has said because he's fairly big on the internet these days. He's sure. really become sort of his own viral, whatever you want to call it. Right. But you know, in those days, a Wesley episode was very often like a you know a, a Maggie episode of The Simpsons. Like, oh, should we? Are we going to tune into this one? You know, you got to make it stand out, you know, if it's right. going to be a Wesley episode. <laughs> Especially when he saves the day. Yes. What people don't, maybe you know, but people don't realize is that 
Gene's name was Eugene Wesley Roddenberry. Oh, back to the names again. He's and he one. saw himself in the character of Wesley. So That's I always cool. thought it was ironic when people were putting Wesley's character down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's Gene. That's Gene, yeah. You know. But yeah, that, yeah it, we were talking again, we're not going to rehash everything we talked about at lunch, but we were reviewing the new Star Wars, and we won't spoil it. I did that on another podcast, where I give them plenty of warning <laughs> right. before we talk Star Wars. But, uh, you know, as things are getting sort of rebranded and reimagined and everything else, is it kind of cool to look back and see the hand that you had in some of that and how it's... Yeah, I, I mean... The two things that I have in my episodes that like continued were Robert April and Umox. Do you remember oh, Umox? Remember, yeah. Well, uh, that the, in Menage a Troy. Right, with the ears. That's and <laughs> That was you, huh? Yeah, it was me. <laughs> and I don't know, the name Umox just popped into my head. But Sounds first like support, a good Ferengi name. I, you know. Uh, <laughs> and then who knew that that would be the one thing that would be in every Star Trek series after that, even Enterprise, <laughs> they seem to yeah. work in Umox. That's funny. That is, now, uh, how close are you to Gene? How much interaction uh, do you have as a writer on his shows? Well, we were friends for about 20 years. I don't count the first time I met him, which is when I interviewed him for my college newspaper mm. during season one of the original series, because <laughs> I never thought I'd see him again. And then I, went to, I graduated and went to work at NBC, as a publicist, and he did a pilot, Questor, and I was the publicist on the pilot. So I got to know him pretty well, and then a year later, I became the publicist on the animated Star Trek, and I treated it like a primetime series, and I set up a lot of interviews, you know, for Gene, uh, went over to the house when his son Rod was born and took a picture of Gene and Majel with baby Aww. Rod and sent that out. And we just got to know each other and then a, a year after that he was moving back to uh, well he was leaving Warner Brothers where he'd done a pilot called Spectre and his assistant didn't want to move with him because he had seniority at mm. Warner Brothers so Gene needed a new assistant I had a friend who needed a job <laughs> Susan Sackett she got the interview she got the job and then I would start going over to Paramount to have lunch with Gene and Susan every couple weeks. Very cool. And then a few years later, the movie was made. Gene put me in the movie. And then Next Generation came along in the 80s. And so I was able to, I, by that time I was a member of the Writers Guild. So I was actually able to go in and pitch to Next Generation. Uh -huh. how, uh, how much hands-on was Gene with Next Generation? At the beginning, uh, a lot. I mean, there were meetings that Gene ran where they came up with the characters and the whole... I wasn't sitting in on those, but I would go over for lunch <laughs> and hear things like, well, we're going to name the Captain Picard. And uh, there's a doctor, and she has a daughter named Leslie, <laughs> which then became a son Wesley, named Wesley. Yeah. But originally she was going to have a daughter. Uh, and so I would hear all these things, and I started thinking of story ideas to match what they were the characters I was hearing about. Uh, so uh, Gene was generous. He was very nice to me, very supportive. And when I didn't pitch to him, but he made it possible for me to go in and pitch That's the first time. Cool. 
And then the second time, Susan and I ended up decided to team up, and we ended up pitching to Gene. By that time, you know he had people in place to take pitches, but certainly in the beginning of Next Generation, you know he died was it? during season five. I was going to say four or five. I yeah, think. yeah. Well, that's cool. See, and again, having researched that when I the whole time I worked with you, I didn't know any of that. <laughs> right. I guess I didn't talk about it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, that was kind of cool as I was doing the research. Now, again, you've been writing for Billboard for how many years? Or do you want to admit how many years? I don't years? mind. I don't <laughs> mind. I'm kind of amazed that I still am. But it's the magazine. It's uh, let's see, going on. It was. I just had my 23rd anniversary. Wow. Before the magazine, though, I was writing books for Billboard. So my, I actually started working for the company in 1984 so that's what 32 years but the mag the, they asked me to start doing a column in 92 and billboard has really transitioned from being you know a trade publication to being one for the everyday listener the everyday music fan hadn't it technically it's still a business trade technically <laughs> but yes i mean you know there's covers now instead of news on the front page right. And I, a lot of people who are interested in music read Billboard. People who want to know, you know, the latest news, Billboard.com is updated every sure. minute. You know, there's news stories going on all the time. And since we have people all over the world, it's literally a 24-hour update Updating on the news. Thing. Yeah, it's uh, to me it's been interesting. You know, we were talking again a little bit at lunch. If I say that too much, I'll just edit that <laughs> out. But, you know, how the industry is sort of evolving as, as things are changing and, you know, people are becoming more attuned to things. You know, when the first Star Wars came out, I can't imagine too many people cared about box office other yeah. than the people who were making movies. Sure. Whereas now, you know, that's trending on every social media what the number one movie of all time right. is and everything else. And that's a big deal to people. It's the same thing with music is, you know, yes. back, you know, even again, going back into the 80s and 90s, while you might hear, say, Dick Clark mentioned it on Bandstand where a record was rated. For the most part, people were like, I like that album, I'm going to buy that album. You know, right. <laughs> They weren't as focused on, on the industry part of the business so much as just the art itself. That's true, and television ratings as mm -hmm. well. You know. Yeah, it, it's all sort of changed. Now, have you had to sort of adapt to that, or is it that your articles and stuff tend to find a home within all of those? I think I uh, probably both. I think I've adapted, and I think also... What I cover, I cover, I'm very heavy on American Idol. They, they've had me covering that for years. Uh, but I write other things too. A lot of it, because I, my lifespan sort of covers most of the rock and roll era. <laughs> I live through a lot of it. So if they need someone to write about something that relates to that, I'm, I'm the guy. And you've written for a lot of award shows and probably had some interaction with a lot of the people you've written about. Yeah, I, I have, too. yeah, I did, uh, 20 years in a row I wrote the American Music Awards, and then I write New Year's Rock and Eve. And what is the best thing about how the industry has changed, and what is the one thing you'd like to see it go back to? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, probably the best thing is so many people are interested that they read not only what I write, but what all my colleagues at Billboard write. So that's that's a good thing. We have a wider audience today, and people are really interested in behind the scenes, you know, talk. The worst thing, uh, probably that people can comment <laughs> online. Ah, feedback, yes. You know, I don't mind feedback, right. but when it's anonymous and mean, 
uh, or just mean. Yeah. And, you know, we've all lived to just let, okay, you know, listen, people are going to write whatever they want. And Well, and I can imagine, like, you know, like you said, American Idol is one of your focuses, and people are very polarized about that show. Sure. You know, there are people that have, they pick their winners in the first episode, and you, you better write what you're supposed to write about that person, or oh, yeah. you'll hear about it, I'm sure. I have. <laughs> I have, but you know, you get used to it. You develop a thick skin, and if 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 what people write online is going to bother you, you probably shouldn't be in the business. Yeah, not to belittle serious cases of harassment that exist, but as as an artist, as a writer, as a performer, as a whatever, like you said, if there's some criticism and you can't handle it, or worse, right. to me, are the ones that they have to respond to everything. Yes. Oh, like that's a dangerous avenue. Once you not, open that floodgate, oh yeah, there's no closing it. <laughs> I have no interest in getting into an online argument with anyone about anything. They're free to express their opinion. That's fine. It isn't. It isn't even the criticism about me. It's people will attack the talent. Right. And I think, who are you to attack the talent? You can you can offer your opinion, but some of it's just downright mean. I'm thinking, yeah. what have you done that you know? allows you to criticize other artists right. or artists. And I, you know, I freely admit there are times that I'm guilty of it. I know that I'm a better person when I restrain myself <laughs> from it. But I also like to think that when I enter into such debates, like you said, it's not about my work. You know, whatever, sure. love me, hate me, that's up to whoever. Sure. But it's usually about something that I just see as a glaring inconsistency or glaring lack of logic. And, you know, it's like right. there, there's room for emotion in every debate. We're all human. Sure. That's what's, what's going to happen. And everybody's going to be passionate about certain things. And I totally believe in freedom of expression. And you don't have to like everything. And it's great to, it is, you know, you can criticize, yeah. certainly. It's, it's the meanness yeah. that really bothers me, I think. Do you think that this may be more philosophical than we need to go, but do you think we as sort of a, a people are becoming more mean-spirited? And is social media sort of making well, that just highlighted? Is that it? It or? allows it to, to be heard and to be seen. Maybe we were always like that. Yeah. But now, every, you know, a million people can, you, you have something to say on Twitter, or, you know, thousands, hundreds yeah. of thousands, a million people can see it and also the you know anonymity of it where this is you know, true you might not say that if everyone knew it was coming yeah. from you that's a lot of people have noticed like i use my real name on social media like on twitter i use the russian spelling of it just right. whatever but uh and that you know i guess to some people that makes me unique in that if i'm going to be critical sure. of something you're honest about it yeah i'm on it this is yeah. me saying yeah. it this isn't yeah. you know a little picture of of a duck Right, you know, and right. the name Tweety seventy five or whatever it is. You know, it's like, actually do you know me. Oh yeah, oh, good people, good people. We right. lunch all the time. Right. <laughs> uh, but I want to emphasize: I certainly don't mind people saying what they think, and and if you don't like something, you know, it's fine to express that. I can be a little snarky in my tweets. I try to, I try to. <laughs> That's be, what tweeting's all about. You well, know, I can be fast. funny. I yeah. like to be funny, but I don't like. I I would never be mean. Yeah. You know, tw you know, Twitter serves no actual purpose. If Twitter went away tomorrow, nothing would change in anybody's lives. It exists for fun, for the ability to be, you know, free expression of things, and I'm, and I'm all for that. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like it, or oh, the 140 characters, and I was resistant to it at first. I didn't see the point of it at first, but, right. you know, I, I follow people on Twitter, 
that are interesting to me. Sure. And if you care to partake in that conversation, that's great. And if there's something I don't like or something I don't want, you know what? Twitter's got a block button. Right. And it's real easy to use. And you go away from my world and I never see your comments again. You know that? <laughs> I've only had to block a couple people. I've had some, like I said, you know, I try to refrain from, you know, directly engaging in things like that. But some days I'm not as good as others. You know? Well, <laughs> you probably should look up all my tweets either. <laughs> yeah, let's show. We'll post a few of them. We'll, we'll retweet a couple of them when we post it. Great. Yeah, we're sitting, for those again that have never been to this place, there's a back room. And we're in it. And it's got a nice little bar and some TVs that are all off but look... Uh, Look like we could be watching a good football game or something on them. Or. They'll also, uh, <laughs> when they have a live show upstairs, they'll broadcast it down here. As, oh, that's as also well. cool. Yeah. Uh, you said that you've had some part in some of the live shows and stuff that happened here. I produced a few. Uh, mo almost all of them have been with American Idols. I did a whole series of brunches where they would perform, but I would also interview them on stage. People seem to like the format because they want to know more about, yep. uh, as we were saying at lunch, <laughs> yeah. people think, you know, feel like they know all the idols yeah. because their stories are told so well on the show. And Yeah, and it's, you know, Love It or Leave It is a series that is one of the things that Idol and a lot of shows like it really changed about, what do you want to call it, variety television or even a game show. However it is you want to describe what the format of it is, is, you know, it used to be, oh, you know, our next contestant is a school teacher from Kansas, let's welcome, and that was all you knew about the person. Right. And now you meet her family, you meet her kids, you find out where she's from, you see the right. car she drives, the home she lives in, yep. you find out about her hopes and dreams and aspirations, and then you hear her sing. See the baby photos. Yep. yep. And, that, and that, you know, people become much more connected to the contestants at that point. Right. You can be critical of the show, and I have been again in the past, but it's, that is something that really those shows have really changed how we view just whatever you want to call them, non-celebrities on TV. Absolutely. You know, you yeah, take, like, yeah. I, I don't even know how you describe them anymore. You know, it's like when you see people in the news where they're like reality show right. participants. I don't know what right. the word is to describe the adjective lot, that really goes with. A lot of the idols have become celebrities, right. for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there, you know, there's, there's a part of that too that, you know, as, as, you know, I remember watching as a kid the gong show. Right. You know, it was a silly, yeah. random variety show. I couldn't name anybody that was a contestant on the go. I mean, I can name the yeah. unknown comic, but I never knew who he was. Right. right. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's one of those things where, you know, at the time it was just, oh, this is somebody that's doing something interesting. You didn't stop to think about, oh, now I can add them on Twitter, you know, and post right. to them and they'll write back to me. Right. And whatever else is a whole different dynamic in, in how we, you know, work with media and how media works with us. You know, if you sure. billboards... You know, website. If you go into an article, I don't know. Again, as a writer, whether you do this or whether they tack it on, but usually at the end of every article now, there's a question. You know, so and so was on Idol today and did this and this. What do you think of the performance? You know, and it's sort right, of that call to action, right. trying to get people to generate comments sure, for things. Sure. And that's something that you know you wouldn't see that at the end of a newspaper article back in the day or in the magazine itself was you know, hey, write us. <laughs> right, right, and inviting comments really. Yeah. You know? And that, to me, you know, you, you become much more engaged. Now, you said you're active on Twitter, not so much on the Book of Face, huh? I have not done Facebook. <laughs> so if you're a friend of mine and you try to contact me that way, not going to happen. But Twitter, I'm at Fred Bronson. Simple enough. Uh, I also have a at Idols Now, all one word, okay. where I post news about all the idols, too. So. Right. And what, 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 you have any breaking news on any uh, 
idle people that you can tell us here? Any scoops? I have breaking news that I can't tell you because Uh-oh. I'm going to break it in billboards. <laughs> oh, fine. The paying and, job. Um, <laughs> and I predict, actually, this story will get picked up everywhere. And cool. that'll break probably on Valentine's Day. Very cool. But I'm keeping it under my hat there for now. Go. I'm not even wearing a hat. But, <laughs> but if he was. Yeah. One of the things you talked to me about uh, when we were when I was looking at scheduling the interview with you is you're working on an Idol book? Okay. Uh, I have been, yeah. I don't know. You know, with Idol ending, there's sort of, I feel like... Is a, there going to be a, a market? Time, yeah. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an official book, you know. A licensed book. Is it a how the show is made, or is it a where are they now, it's, or is it a... No, it it's, takes you season by season. Okay. Because I lived through all sure. of it, and I've, you know, done hours of interviews with the producers, and as well as the idols. Well, I guarantee you my mom and sister will be interested. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll tell the publisher. I got two sold for sure, although I'll probably have to give them to, you know... I did do a book on American Bandstand. Yeah. And I wrote it with Dick. Uh, spent a whole summer. Now, I, I worked for him for over 30 years. So, But this one summer... Uh, we always have to be careful how we say I worked for Dick. Because yes, you always have right. to... Every Dick Clark joke came back to me this weekend as I thought I'm going to be talking to somebody with you know Dick Clark background. And I'm had, sure when he was alive, he heard them all. Uh, right? Every one of them must have been just, yeah. uh-huh, just pause, wait for it to happen, move on. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you worked for him for 30 years. I did. And uh, so one, he came to me one year and said, uh, I, I've got a contract to write a book. Would you like to write it with me? Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. So uh, it was a book about band, but also about him personally, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, just spent a whole summer where I'd go over to the office in Burbank, where you worked as well, and interview him. And every time would be a different topic. So I'd say, today we're going to talk about the 50s. Today we're going to talk about civil rights. Today we're going to talk about the disco era. And after a whole summer of these interviews, they were all transcribed. And then I had all these, you know, paperwork in front of me <laughs> and fashioned the book out of his words, really. That's very cool. Yeah, it was fun to do. Was there an era of music that he really connected to versus some of the others? Yes. That, like, were there some that he sort of phoned in versus well, ones that he had some passion for? He had a favorite. I think he liked it all, but he had a favorite. And he never told anybody what it was until we did the bandstand book because he didn't want to offend anyone sure. uh, if you like this kind of music and dick says i like this kind of music right, that immediately sets sets yeah. you apart and you never wanted to do a that. lot of things he didn't say about what he personally liked yeah. in, in any field because why alienate half your audience yep. you know so when we were doing the book he said ah what the hell you know i've lived my life and I think I can talk about this stuff now. But you might be surprised that his favorite music, and this is the truth, is disco. He okay. loved disco music. Now, he loved all kinds of music, sure. but he loved I mean, as, as they always called him, the perennial child, yeah. I can see that just because the disco had that sort of very, I don't want to say juvenile, but it, had a very, it was a very freewheeling form of music that wasn't it was very light-hearted in tone you know it had a great beat you, had, could you dance, dance to, to it. it yes <laughs> dick clark was reluctant to sort of share any individual views you know he was very blank slate you know here right. he was he was the presenter his job was to present his job was to host right and in today's day and age we don't have too much of that 
you know, everybody has to be the personality. They've got to be, whereas I think that, again, Ryan, to his criticism and praise, that's what he does. Yes, very well. You know, is I don't think anybody could watch an episode of American Idol and know who he was rooting for. Right. On the no, show. You, and you shouldn't. Yeah. You shouldn't. But I think if you watch almost, right. you know, and, and, you know, the right. people that are just regular hosts, they still will have those sort of things. It's, sure. No, Ryan is, well, you know, he makes it look so easy, and it's not. But people will sometimes watch him and go, oh, I can do that. Well, you can. <laughs> and people who have tried have proved that. So he's a great talent. He's certainly a great, among other things, a great traffic cop on a live show. Uh, but he's also a great morning DJ and a great producer of television shows. And I can tell you, he's great to work with. I, I just can't say enough about Ryan. Well, you know, there, there, like I said, there's a certain skill you look at just what a host does now versus what they do and he fits that sort of classic stereotype of what a host you know sure well yeah again as the as the as the art forms evolve just as we were talking about writing evolving you know and changing with the times you see those different things you know certainly drew carey as host of the price is right is very very different than bob sure. barker sure. he's not right. right or more right or more wrong right but you know again it usually falls down to what we were accustomed to you know bob barker's always going to be the host of prices right to me right you know and it's a tough transition dick clark always rang in the new year on that show and it's a tough sure. segue for people you know oh, with, yeah. the, with the world of star wars you know you know these new characters are a tough segue for some people to adapt and it's i do think well we talked about ryan you know and is he like dick clark he has been called the next dick clark He's the only person I ever heard Dick Clark say was the next Dick Clark. Oh, yeah. He Dick was... Dick needed next Dick when, Clark. When, when Dick Clark was in the process of selling his production company, there was talk that Ryan was going to buy it, which to me seemed a very natural well, thing. Yeah, at one point, I mean, you're right. Uh, now, Dick originally sold the company about 15 years ago, and then it was sold again, and then it was sold again, and that time, Ryan was one of the bidders. There were nine bidders, including... Yeah. CBS, uh, but they they ultimately didn't get it. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's still cooking. You said you're, there's still some of the old gang there that you see from time. There to time. are, there are, there are people who, there who weren't born when I started there, <laughs> but there's also a great number of people. Do they uh, still have little dogs that roam around the building, or are those well, days gone? No, that was that was. I mean, you can bring your dog there, but people don't. <laughs> Uh, but because Dick had a number of dogs, as you remember, yep. and they were always in the building. So one of one of my yeah. favorite Dick Clark stories was there was a show that they produced for Fox, and I won't even describe the show because it's not worth describing. But nobody wanted their name on it. The people who put it together, absolutely nobody wanted their name on it at all. And at the time, Dick Clark had two dogs. One was named Lucille, and one was named Bernardo. And if you do a Google search somewhere, you will find the show that I'm talking about because the producer was listed as Lucille Bernardo. That's very funny. On the show. Very funny. <laughs> I remember Lucille and I remember Bernardo. Uh, kind of all their dogs. Now, yep. Carrie, Dick's wife, still has a number of dogs. And... She was such a saint. She was such, you know, she was that calming voice in that office at all times. I just, yeah. one, of, one of my favorite Carrie Clark stories was working on the Golden Globes at the time. Um, one of the she was waiting to get entry into the ballroom, and one of the guards didn't know who she was. Right, she's not a famous face like Mr. Clark, sure. you know, and whatever sure. else. And again, she's the most patient, 
person on the planet was just, okay, that's, that's fine, we'll just wait. Out comes her husband, who was much, <laughs> much less patient about it. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but I just remember sitting there going, this isn't going to end well for anybody involved, but look at just the poise on this woman of just, it's okay, it's all very... Everything's fine. Carrie is great, and she <laughs> is to this day. I I just had dinner with her in New York, actually, and she's terrific. I remember stopping by the office just before I left for the Peace Corps, and she was very enthusiastic and supportive, which I will never forget. That was something. Yeah. Well, that's Carrie. Yep, that was very. And boy, their Christmas parties were my favorites. I love them. They, you they know, still have them, but do they? yeah. But, but yeah, those were just yeah. fun. You know, I forget the last one I had gone to. They had like five different chefs, right, in a ballroom, all you know, serving different things. Up at the top of the Sheraton. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, yeah, that was early on. One of the first ones I went to. I remember Dick saying, "Folks, a lot of you are telling me uh, that you valeted your car. We don't have a valet." <laughs> of course, they did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a joke I got to remember somewhere down the line. (laughs) Momentary panic. Yeah. There was, I don't know if we're just going to keep telling silly Dick Clark (laughs) stories, but he was on a show he didn't produce called Winning Lines. Again, it was in that game show era of the late 90s. Winning Lines. And the show itself had a very interesting premise, very interesting final round, everything else, but logistically, technically, it was horrible to produce. There was so much technology involved and it failed. Constantly, and to do two episodes took us about 12, 13 hours. It was bad. Right. And you know, Dick Clark is very professional. When it's his production, things aren't going to take twelve hours to do two episodes. But since it wasn't, he was limited in how much control he could exert and whatever else. But sure. at one point, he had turned to somebody on the crew when something had gone wrong, and he just looked at them and he goes, "Well, we weren't dancing together that time, were we?" <laughs> For the for the guy from Bandstand to make that crack was, I thought, a very right. funny little little moment in him. But right. uh, it just you know we we've had some interesting. Uh, you've had more interesting times. You got to have the the whole uh, traveling to New York and you know getting yeah, full interviews. I feel very lucky that you know all the people that I've worked with over the years, uh, Dick included, Gene Roddenberry, Bob Hope. I did. Publicity for his specials. I was going to talk years. to you about Hope, and the other one I wanted to talk to you about is Tom Snyder, because yeah. we both share a mutual appreciation of Mr. Snyder. Right. You know, again, I worked for him very indirectly as, as an intern, and you worked for him much more directly. I was the publicist on the Tomorrow Show for many years. That just, you know, he was like he was he was in many ways a mentor in terms of the world of broadcasting. When, you know, and I will say this too: whether this, this may be an insult to his memory, but when I sit down to do a podcast and interview, I sort of get myself in the mindset of how when he was talking to people, you know, whether they were there to promote something or not, it was more about the person. Right. You know, it wasn't about a thing or a movie or a book or a song or whatever it was, you know, sure. and that was sure. it's something that I always sort of try to keep in the back of my skull as I'm talking to anybody is that just sort of you don't see it again in, in TV anymore you know, when he left Late Late Show right. you know, I guess the only other couple of them that were doing it, like Larry King did a similar type of thing, but to just sit down and have a conversation is rare Yes, and to be able to do it, you know, was something that Tom Snyder was gifted with, just naturally could, you know Take some, whether he agreed with them or not, could take them. I, you know, there's an interview and you can find it on on YouTube that he did back on the Tomorrow Show. Maybe you were there with Ayn Rand. I don't know. I if don't you know were. if I was there because, of course, the shows also came from New York for right. many years. And I, I was the. And I'm not sure early. which era that one was, yeah, but yeah. it's posted 
And you can see him being very, very gentle to someone that he clearly disagreed with about everything. There was not right. a single thing that was coming out of her mouth right. that he was, you know, in support of. But he was, again, we were talking about respect earlier. At no point did he disrespect her. At no sure. point did she disrespect him. They mutually disagreed right. on things. And he was getting her to clarify and discuss and debate and do these different it was things. It an intelligent conversation. Right. And you don't see that. You don't see it in politics. You don't see it in news. You certainly don't see it in entertainment talk Probably shows. Probably the closest we have to it today is Charlie Rose. Sure. And he, you know, my, my long-standing joke of Charlie Rose is that he asks questions that aren't questions. Uh, that always because he will go, "Well, you worked in Hollywood," uh, and people will just sit there and be like, "Oh, it's my turn to talk." <laughs> <laughs> like, well, that was a fact. That wasn't a question, Charlie. Let's right. do that. But That's but you're right. Yeah, Charlie has that. Another one, and he's a podcaster that does it now. Is the stand-up comic Kevin Pollack. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever listen to or watch any of his podcasts, no. but. Uh, he has Kevin Pollack's chat show, and every Sunday he goes live with somebody, mm. and A, it's live, which is entertaining enough, because right. you don't see live TV anymore, it's something right. that I live for, but B, it's two people, a blank background, a desk, and that's it, and they will talk, I've seen some of the interviews go three hours, without a break, just having a conversation. Well, well I can't say too much about it, but I've actually been pitching a series to PBS, which would be an interview show Ooh. where I would be doing the interviews. Ooh. And I wish I could tell you more right now, but I really can't. <laughs> if you need an assistant. Uh, we'll talk. Yeah. No, uh, that would be... But it's, uh, I'm, I'm working with a specific production company on it, and uh, we're far along, but we're not on the air yet. Is it, trying to think of how, how to word it in a, in a way... Is PBS really the only avenue for something like that now, do you no, think? No, but they're very... In this particular show, I felt was a PBS show, and they seem to agree. So, no, it's definitely not the only one. But I think that's the right home for this, sure. this show, as far as demographics and other things. But I guess what, the reason I'm even bringing it up is that I'm told when people see me do interviews... They'll tell me after, wow, that was like watching you have a conversation with somebody. And you, right. you mentioned that, and maybe I learned that from hanging around Tom Snyder. I, you know, to me, I think his style is infectious. There's certain people, like one of the people I became a fan of, um, another Star Trek person, was Harlan Ellison. I became uh, a fan of him through Tom Snyder. Right. I knew nothing about him until I'm interning, and this force of nature comes into the room. Right. And they sit down and they have this conversation. I was like, I need to know everything I can about this man. You yeah. know, I, knew, I mean, now I know his whole history, and I've got 30 of his books and scripts right. that I've bought and everything else. Sure. But at the time, all I knew was that this was just a compelling individual. Right. And you don't see that on TV right now. <laughs> and if anybody's curious about him, they should go watch Demon with a Glass Hand on the Outer Limits. And although he wasn't happy with it, City on the Edge of Forever. Edge of Forever, certainly. The finest album. You can also get his unedited script is available yes. of that one as well. Yeah, City on the Edge of Forever is noted by most as the most popular Star Trek episode. Right. Uh, but he's My done favorite. so much. Yeah, he's done so much since then. For those that right. might recognize the name, it's by law now required to be in the closing credits of every Terminator 
<laughs> serious thanks on the guy with the glass hand episode of right. Outer It's Robert Culp, and is it the Bradbury Building? It is. In L.A.? I yeah. love that building. Every yeah. time I go downtown, I go to the last L.A. bookstore, and then I'll walk through the Bradbury while I'm over there. I remember having lunch there one day in a little cafe there. Yeah, it's a famous yeah. building used in many TV series and yep. films. Uh, James Garner did a version of Philip Marlowe in a motion picture many years ago and that was his office in that one. It's like now every time I see that building I'm like, I know that building. Right. And it's it's weird to see those little cultural things out there. But yeah, it's but yeah, but seeing Tom going back to that point and just seeing if you can get an interview show going like that, that would be awesome. I think it would be cool to see just talk back on television. I suppose maybe you could call like the view and those sorts of shows yeah. But like, because yeah. they do have sort of those introductory moments, but to me, it's sure. a lot of people talking over each other. There's sure. not a lot of listening, right? And it's I struggle with that as host too, as I always want to interject myself and I try to back away. But you know, you, as as the host, ask the question and set aside. You know, and that's right. Uh, I'm just lucky I've been doing interviews with people. You know, since I was 16. I, you know, recently Leslie Gore passed away, but I had interviewed her over the years the first time when I was 16. And many years later, I reminded her of that first interview, and she said, you're my almost famous. And I said, you're my Led Zeppelin. Uh, but I was lucky I started so early, and I just knew this is what I wanted to do with my life. You yeah. know, I wanted to write and uh, both be a journalist and a, a fiction writer. You managed to do that? It's, I've been very I, I, I'm always envious of people who have been able to sort of, I don't know if you want to call it a dream or whatever it is, but to have sort of found that vocation that makes them happy and gives them, you know, the freedom to do what they want to do, and I congratulate you for it. Oh, thanks. I feel very lucky that I've been able to... Well, Mr. Bronson, I thank you for uh, taking good. a couple of minutes here with me and introducing me to a good restaurant. and. Now I have um, another place I can take people when I need it. The, 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 again, official restaurant of the podcast until the next restaurant until comes Until the on. next one comes <laughs> along. Well, I, I'm here a lot, so if anybody comes in, they'll probably see me eating. In a oh, room. you might not want to say that to your fans, you know. I should be so lucky. <laughs> They're all going to be swarming this place looking for autographs. I've never been swarmed. I, I doubt if it's going to happen. <laughs> we'll make it happen. We'll rally the troops together. <laughs> We'll schedule a time and create a swarm. All right. Well, thank you so much, sir. My pleasure, Kevin. You Thanks have a for great time, and let me know yeah. what happens with that show. I will. We can talk again when we got <laughs> yes, something running. Well, that's that. <laughs> All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, Fred Bronson. He is one of the better guys that I got to know when I worked briefly in Hollywood. And I wish the best for him on his new show. I wish the best for uh, him and his writing, continued writing. And I wish that uh, if you haven't picked up any of his books or watched any of the stuff that he has been a part of, uh, give, give, it a, give it a look. Give it a check out. It's, it's worth it. He's, he's a good guy. He, he deserves good things to happen to, and I'm, and I'm glad to see that that seems to be what's happening. I'd like to take a moment here and talk about the state of the podcast. The state of the podcast is, in a word, unprofitable. I'm going to be honest. I started this show as an attempt to just stretch my creative muscles, as it were. Uh... The, the, the paying job that I have isn't creative in any way, shape, or form, and, and I missed having that aspect of my life, and I, I like the, the control that comes with having a podcast, the freedom of sort of being able to decide who I want to talk to and who I don't, and to edit it down to what I want, you know, to have you guys listen to, and, and all of that stuff, and like I said, I enjoy this podcast a lot. I know that uh, our announcer, Craig, has enjoyed working, you know, with me here on it, but... Uh, 
This podcast in, is, well, in, in a word, unprofitable. Yep, we have not uh, located ourselves a good sponsor. We haven't located ourselves a, a sizable enough audience to generate, you know, that viral meme interest that brings money from product placement and celebrity endorsement and porn and all the other things that are popular on the internet. We can't even translate this show into a cat video, for goodness sakes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a couple of, couple of weeks here, probably two weeks, and I'm not going on vacation. There's no celebrity cruise I have planned or anything like that, uh, but I want to take some time and really focus on getting the next batch of interviews uh, done so that uh, we don't have any delays in releasing them. I want to focus on, well, jobs that, that pay money. Uh, I have to focus on that. And I want to focus on just, you know, giving you guys what I think is going to be the best possible shows. And in order to do that, I'm going to need to take some time to do that. So I may throw a couple of sub-episodes up. We'll see what the winds blow in this direction. I don't know why we're talking about the wind so much today. I guess because it's windy. But uh, we're not checking out. We're not shutting down. Nothing like that's happening. I'm enjoying the show. I've heard a lot of positive feedback from the listeners that you guys are enjoying the show. Uh, the people that I've been interviewing have been enjoying the show, so we're going to keep the show going, but I do need to take some time to devote to not just the production of the show, but, you know, my life. I, I, I have a life. I used to have a life. I think I have a life. I almost vaguely remember a life somewhere. So we're going to spend some time on that, and then I will be back with you as soon as it is feasible to do so. So in the meantime... uh Thank you for listening. Thank you for paying attention to the show. Please spread the word about the show. And until next time, get off my lawn. This has been the Get Off My Lawn podcast brought to you by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com slash marusic for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback, download an ebook, and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com, clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Get Off My Lawn Pod. Check out our SoundCloud at Get Off My Lawn Podcast, or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes. Questions or comments, or to suggest a guest, our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. The theme was written and composed by Brian Weideman. Check out his music at www.worldbride.com. That's W-O-R-L-D-B-R-I dot com. The logo was designed by Julie Contreras at Urban Bird Design. Go to UrbanBirdDesign.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend.